that talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to the Wednesday Buckeye Talk, recorded shortly after the Tuesday Buckeye Talk. Don't get me the Baird, Stephen Means. It feels like a big gap to you. It's a short gap to us because, man, football is back. Just makes me feel good to watch some football and have information, Nathan, rather than just be, you know, making stuff up for three months. So it's uh, reassuring. We have news. Go back, listen to the Tuesday pod that we put up Tuesday afternoon because we had a hot and fresh Tuesday morning. That was all defense. This is going to be offense. But before Nathan, Stephen, and I get started on the offense, Jackson Smith and Jigba, Paris Johnson, CJ Stroud, Luke Whippler, Donovan Jackson, Joe Royer, all kinds, Evan Pryor, Trayvon Henderson, all kinds of good stuff. Nathan, there was a leadership discussion as part of the talking points on Tuesday from Ryan Day, Kevin Wilson, and Jim Knowles. And it felt like they had like a very kind of specific thing that they did. I don't know what it's going to lead to, but Nathan, clearly they felt like they had a leadership vacuum and it sounds like they got proactive during the winter to get after that and try to grow some leaders. Yeah, so the contrast Ryan Day made was between what happened at halftime of the Rose Bowl, which where he said, you know, the leadership made itself apparent, stood up and kind of reversed what was going on in that game and led them to a win, as opposed to the Michigan game where he said, we didn't have that, um, that the leadership that they needed to get them through the adversity that day didn't exist. So now obviously the Rose Bowl the fact that you use that example tells you that they had made some progress already, but yeah, they implemented and he, he, he didn't want to divulge, I think all the specificity of it for, for whatever reason uh, they like to keep some of that stuff close to the vest, but the way he described it was they had sort of a, a meeting, talked about leadership, uh, asked for volunteers from the program who wanted to, you know, who, who among you wants to be the leaders uh, they, they took down those volunteers. They then had a team-wide vote and the top 24 vote getters, they split the team up into 12 groups and had two leaders in each group. And then there was accountability both for both within the groups for what guys were getting done through the winter workouts. And then also um, if there were things that you were deficient in, you know, if somebody, if somebody from that group showed up late, then the whole group had to do community service. The whole group was held accountable. And I think that's been sort of part of a little bit of a, a culture reset. I don't think anybody thinks that the culture at Ohio State was bad. Uh, they clearly had some deficiencies the last few years in terms of communication on the defensive side of the ball and the way that was set up. Um, I, I don't know how much I think that was deficient character among defensive players. I think it was a combination of uh, some scheme that went awry and uh, some recruiting things that never got fixed from three, four years ago. But clearly it was a sort of creative way, I guess, to address what you feel like is in addition to doing the things they already did, bringing in Jim Knowles, bringing in Perry Perry Eliano, bringing in Tim Walton. Um, You're not bringing those guys in and saying, these guys are going to fix this for you. You're still putting some accountability on the players to uh, address what they have to do, take care of things that they have to take care of. I think last year, go ahead. ahead. Leadership in college sports talked about too much or talked about not enough. I think it's just right. Because if you put too much of an emphasis on it, it's almost like college coaches are not trying to take accountability as the people who are making million. 
well, at this point, six-figure salaries by the players who are making close to nothing. But if you don't talk about it enough, things like last year can happen when you don't discuss it. I think last year, Ohio State had a senior class where whether he was injured or not, they had a senior cornerback who was in the doghouse to start the season. And then they had a week where they lost a senior linebacker to the transfer portal in the middle of the week. And then another senior linebacker who, in the, who during a game threw a temper tantrum. And that's just what the and that's just what the general and all I'm saying is that's just what the general public saw and knew about. So there must have been other things going on behind the scenes. I do not feel like this coaching staff as a whole felt like the senior class last year did a good job leading this team. Is that what they lost? I think leadership is about 20 percent of the reason why you lose. The other 80% is about the millions of other things that happen with football. But I do think there is a percentage that can go to if guys are not being held accountable to do what they're supposed to do, not just by the coaches, but by their peers, it can, yeah, it can start to unravel on the field and on the scoreboard. It's a little bit tricky because I think if last year's best leaders had been uh, Dallas Gantt and Kayvon Pope, uh, it would have reduced those distractions that they had midseason, but it wouldn't have helped the team win. Your best leaders can't be guys who don't play. So, and that's the problem. There weren't enough leaders who were also playing, but they're just young. I mean, like I, I think we talk about it too much. I find okay. leadership discussions to be. I'm just. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm no. just finding like they. We talked. Their players weren't good enough last year. It's like Taraji Mitchell was a captain, and then like he didn't play well enough to stay on the field. Is that leadership, or is that their linebackers didn't play well enough? Right. Seven Banks had like a goofy year. Clearly, Seven Banks had a lot of stuff going on, so they had to play Denzel Burke. Well, Denzel Burke's not going to be a leader as a true freshman, and then their best safety got hurt, broke his leg, and so it's like I don't know. Or Bryson is Bryson Shaw supposed to be a better leader? Haskell Garrett was a good leader. I'm thinking of the guys at the combine. Haskell Garrett clearly led, but a lot of the other guys, I would say the guys at the combine, I don't know. When I think about Chris Olave, Nicholas Petit Frere, Garrett Wilson, Jeremy Ruckert, Tyreek Smith, I, I don't know that the first thing I think about with them is leadership. I mean, and there have been guys that have come through here a little bit, but they're young. They were young. They're mostly young. And so they do, they want to get these young guys energized and make sure they take ownership of this team. But now they're going to have a lot of guys, CJ Stroud. Trevon Henderson, Jackson Smith and Jigba, Paris Johnson, who are going to be second year starters, who are going to be juniors and seniors or at least third year guys and fourth year guys who are going to have ownership in the program. And I think it'll solve itself. This was not I didn't think this was a um, like ridiculously talented team, one through 22, all the starters that it was like an embarrassment that they fell short of the playoff. Like their defense wasn't good enough. Correct. Right. So like that mm-hmm. was the bottom line. So, I mean, Urban Meyer made a big deal about this too, when he came in, I mean, he did it when he came in, it was like all this leadership stuff and they re- sort of revamped stuff, but they were coming off a six and seven year too. So, I mean, like, I just, I find it interesting when they talk about the specifics of it, but I think sometimes we overrate. There are some people, Nathan, you know how it is. There are some people there. It's like, Oh, 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 I said the L word. Oh, I can write. I can either write a 2000 word story or I can make a 60 second TV package about leadership, about young men growing. I want to talk football. But so sometimes the leadership stuff a little bit goes a long way for me. When Urban Meyer came in, he did have to change the culture like you would just they Mm -hmm. had just had a cataclysmic event and they had to reset things a little bit. I, I think there, if he had undersold the leadership 
I mean, maybe things would have been fine because obviously he revamped the recruiting too. But I think there you kind of needed to maybe overemphasize it. I think what happens also is when we have these conversations, leadership, like team-wide leadership and individual mental toughness get conflated. And it's like if you have enough leaders on a team, they can like yell at young guys enough that they'll be more mentally tough. I don't really think that's how that works. I think it was the mental toughness that was individual mental toughness was missing from some players, some players that we generally talk said good things about all season. We weren't saying that about them, but the way they played in that Michigan game. So I, I think that what I was hearing today when Ryan day was saying that was two things. It was number one. It was kind of what I said before, like, okay, I did my thing where I went and got all these new coaches and we're going to try some new things and, and revamp the defense. But there's some, you guys need to start like approaching things in a different way too. Here's the accountability that's going to be put in place to do that. But then also second to that was just using this exercise to instill that mental toughness. I'm not as mentally tough as most good college football players are. It's why I don't get out and do the very minimal amount of exercise that I need to do to have a good life, let alone go out and do the exercise that these guys have to do. You know what I'm saying? I think there is such a thing as like mental toughness. It's an attribute. Like these guys are literally the best guys are the most mentally tough. And so you've got to do something every once in a while as a coach, I think to kind of, um, Spark that. I think one thing I'm going to start doing this offseason is I'm going to start two counters. I'm going to start one counter is going to be how many times Doug brings up Disney World between now Mm. and and kickoff. And the other one is going to be how many ways can Nathan Bear call himself fat? Those are going to be my two counters because they you two didn't, bring away to call myself fat. I know I, no, that's what, I wasn't no. mentally tough. Right. But you you have you have it's 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 a unique quality that I figured out. You have all these different ways to call yourself fat without ever actually saying the word fat. And it's that's applaudable. It's genuinely an applaudable thing. I respect it so much. But now to the point you were making uh, about that. George Carlin, I believe, was the one who said that by and large, Language is a tool for concealing the truth, something like that. There you go. Yes. Yeah, I applaud it. That's what I'd be like. You call yourself fat. You just never say the word. But to your point, I, one coach speak thing that they did a lot this year is he would, and a lot of coaches do this, so you take it with a grain of salt, but he would constantly be going, and he would say it with a little bit of annoyance, the idea of you don't just get to walk out on the field with the Ohio State jersey on and just win games. And sometimes you say that because you're just talking coach speak, and sometimes you're actually talking to somebody on the team, and it felt like there were some times where he was talking to somebody on the team, but the defense was so bad that you're not worried about that part of it, the mental toughness part of it. You're worried about, man, this scheme sucks, and these players don't have any idea what they're doing. So I think maybe I'll go down to 15% with leadership but the point is with leadership it's not something you notice it's lacking until it starts impacting the scoreboard yeah it kind of i think what doug would maybe be getting at is like you'll never have a nine and three ohio state team come into the next offseason and say well at least we had really great leadership like yeah it, fair we always apply those things in reverse but you will have undefeated teams that have like first round draft picks draped all over the place and they'll still try to come back the next off season and say like, Oh, it was really our, our senior leadership from that walk on that. We made a captain that put us over the top, not the seven draft picks that we had so you, two days of the. So you mean like in 2018 when they brought back basically the entire defense and then they went to the playoff with like the top two defensive players taken off the board. Listen, in, in 20 in 2014, yeah. In 2014, they got some really good veteran leadership from guys like Michael Bennett, Duran mm-hmm. Grant, 
Evan Spencer, and they won the national title because of Joey Bosa, Ezekiel Elliott, Von Bell, Darren Lee, Michael Thomas, and a load of talent. So, like, I get it. I'm I'm already falling asleep from our leadership discussion. I'm asleep. So great. I like, Paris. I, I like the specifics of like, oh, you had 24 guys. Are they volunteered? I, at some point I was like, could you name them? Could you please list the 24 guys? Because even within the 24 guys, he was like, we got 24 guys. Some of them weren't great leaders. <laughs> it was like, we made thought, them. That was, gonna, really, that was yeah. really uh, interesting to hear. He's like, hey, some of them weren't it. This yeah, is like okay. some of your 22 starters aren't it on day one. Okay. But right. so, so, okay, Ryan, tell us the ones were it. And let's not wait until yeah. the fall camp well, when he announces the eight captains and we can name, oh, it's going to be CJ Stroud and Jackson Smith and the Jigba. Like we, we know, and Cody Simon. Just tell us now. Can you imagine? I mean, that would be like, yeah, right. right how the, he's like, oh, like these 17 guys were, were pretty good at it. These seven were not good leaders. Steve Jones. <laughs> Anthony Johnson. It's like, what? It's like breaking Steve Jones has entered the transfer portal. (laughs) Seven Buckeyes who volunteered to lead and were terrible at it. I'm going to do a little list. All right, let's talk some football. Paris Johnson at left tackle. I said, is he the guy? Is he first up? And I liked it because Steven, I thought we got a dose of we're not going to say nice things about the guy who's good. And I was like, ding, 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 ding. Paris Johnson is ready to roll because they refuse to say nice things about him. You want to know exactly what this was? This whole, oh, he's going to get pushed. It's going to be a competition. It's literally when Justin Fields transferred here and they tried to sell us on this. He's in a competition with Matthew Baldwin for the starting quarterback job. No, dude, we, we know who the starting left tackle is. It's Paris Johnson Jr., Watch out for the Gunner Hoke of left tackles. Watch out, Paris. He's coming for you. Now, listen, they did say that, like, this is a guy who handles his business. They did say things Mm -hmm. like that. But then they acted like it's not a lock. They said nice Mm -hmm. things about Paris Johnson because there's a lot of things that you should say about Paris Johnson that are nice because he's a very talented athlete who works very hard. And Kevin Wilson made the point, or Ryan Day made the point. I forget which one it was, Nathan. You know, he is a tackle. He played guard last year, but he's always been a tackle. So he is a tackle. So it's not really a transition. But as Stephen was saying, Nathan, they tried to act like it's not set in stone because they wanted to be motivated. They don't want him to get a big hit, right? It's a little bit, but we know the deal and it's just to confirm it. So that's what spring practice is for sometimes, Nathan. We get to talk to these guys for the first time in a while. We all knew Paris Johnson was going to be the left tackle, but guess what? Paris Johnson's going to be the left tackle. And I think we should also qualify this. I thought Day's answer was much closer to, well, yeah, he's our guy. And Kevin Wilson was the one who sprinkled a little doubt in there about like, well, as long as he shows up. And Kevin Wilson was the one who back in the Rose Bowl practices when he was asked about the offensive line had said, uh, you know, uh, uh, probably Paris, but who knows, maybe Dewan, like something along those lines. Like he was leaving it open that maybe Dewan Jones could compete at left tackle, which at the time I had heard as maybe more of like, oh, let's give him a little bit more incentive to come back for another year, but then he's still saying it today and throwing Donovan Jackson's name in there as a possible left tackle or, or whatever. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, but it's coach speak. We know who the starting left tackle is going to be unless something goes really wrong. This team isn't going to be as good as it can be. If Paris Johnson jr. Isn't the starting left tackle. He did say he sort of said like the, was it most reliable guy will be the left tackle. And Mm -hmm. I think he listed Paris Johnson, jr. Dewan Jones, Zed Machalski, 
threw Donovan Jackson in there. I mean, even though nobody really thinks I don't that Donovan Jackson's a tackle. And I think through Josh Fryer in there, but Josh Fryer is one of the guys who's out for the spring, but is a guy that has come up. His name came up a couple times at the combine. I think fair Munford and Nicholas Petit fair both mentioned Josh Fryer. So Nathan, I have like Josh radars, Josh Fryer's a little more on my radar based on what NPF and Thayer said, but he's the guy. And if you guys didn't hear it on the Tuesday pod, there's a list of 10 guys who are not going to take part in spring and Josh Fryer is one of them, but I don't think it's impossible that Josh Fryer, you know, works in somewhere or winds up as like their sixth offensive lineman is the swing tackle. Swing tackle, man. Woo, that's an important job. Like the, the next guy up that you can have a, an injury at tackle and you're okay. If Josh Fryer does that for them, that is filling a role, but we're just not going to see him in the spring. Well, it's no, and we've been talking all along about how this year and next the tackle just seemed seems so thin. I mean, you still and and last year's offensive line, the the primary story became obviously kind of the, the jumbling around. But it, it, at at one point, it seemed like the primary story was going to be this might be the deepest offensive line in the country. I don't think you would say that about this one, or you're not saying it about it yet. There's just a lot unknown beyond what appears to be a quickly establishing first string. So guys like Josh Fryer, guys like Zimnichowski, it's interesting to hear his name in the mix because he's another guy that if he can play either tackle spot and, and play it well enough to, to take real Big Ten reps, that helps them a lot. Enig Vamahi was a guy who lined up last year as the, the backup left tackle, even though that wasn't really what he was ever going to really do. So they've got guys, but it last year it felt like there was like boom, boom, like first string line, second string line, this thing is set in stone and they're good to go. And they can even play with some guys who could do it well enough to do it at multiple positions. And this year, it seems like there's a little bit more fragility to it. I think Josh Fryers could have had a window to try to steal a job on the interior this year if he wasn't hurt. But like, I think we're going to reach a point here where Donovan Jackson is going to get a lot of reps okay. on one side. Hold and on. Okay. Yes, sorry. I have a plan. I I'm write sorry. it out. I got the whole I, thing. You don't think we're going to get to Donovan Jackson? Yeah, yeah, he keeps it to Just himself. <laughs> we'll get to it. We're going to get to you everybody. Know, you know what my favorite thing about this pod has actually been? So when I first joined the pod, we were at this point where it's like, Doug, is just, he has all these plans in his head. And then we had reached a point when Nathan came on where we had like this outline that everybody got. And we did that for a little bit. And then COVID hit. We were doing pods every single day. And now we've fallen right back into this, this mode of, you know. It's in his head. But, listen, Donovan Jackson is not like a an add-on to the Paris Johnson conversation. I know, I know. Donovan I remember, Jackson. You're right. Okay, is so a my, ten my, minute my, discussion. You're right. My point is, my point is with Josh Fryer is it felt like there was maybe an opportunity for him to earn a starting job on the interior, but it, your best ability is availability. If he's not going to be available at at full strength this this spring, he might get passed up and might just have to wait another year again. So it feels like the tackles. Not surprisingly, our set, Paris Johnson Jr. is going to be the left tackle. Dewan Johnson, or Joan Jones will be the right tackle. And I think, Nathan, a year from now, we could be talking about both of them as first-round tackles. I, I don't think that is crazy to talk about. As good as I think NPF was, NPF's not going in the first round. But I think NPF is definitely going to be a day-two guy. He'll go in round two or round three. Uh, I think Dewan Jones is just such an interesting package of traits. And then Paris Johnson Jr. is a stud. So I think that's where we are with this. Let's talk about a guy first before we get to Donovan Jackson. And you've got to hear what they said about Donovan Jackson. Let's talk about a guy who is playing a very important role in possibly this interior offensive line solidifying. 
and it's by his absence. Nathan, we don't know what the situation is exactly with Harry Miller. He clearly battled a lot of injuries a year ago. He's on the list of 10 guys who are not participating this spring. And when Ryan Day was asked about Harry Miller on Tuesday, he just gave like a very short answer. And it was so short that it felt like, well, I don't know what's happening, but it feels I, I, I don't know what's happening. But the longer that we just kind of don't exactly know what's up with Harry Miller, the more you wonder about it. And I know you did in January depth charts and projections. I think you had Harry Miller as a starter. I don't know that we would talk about Harry Miller as a starter right now because there just seems to be so much uncertainty around him. Yeah, I mean, just let alone the fact that he can't be out there to start the spring. I thought that was a bad sign when he wasn't out there at all, wasn't even working on the side today. Then we get the official confirmation that he's one of the 10 guys that isn't practicing at all. Uh, I No, I don't, I don't think he is on track anymore to start this fall. I tried to ask Kevin Wilson about that. He, you know, gave an answer about, you know, sure, he can play either one of those inside spots, but there's, it sounds like there's just no timetable. They don't, I don't think they know when they can count on Harry Miller playing football right now. And we don't know the, 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 the full story behind that, but, so, I mean, they. I thought one telling thing that just kind of almost just slipped past my ears today, and I'm jumping to another guy, but it, it started by kind of what you're saying, that Harry Miller's absence kind of helps define things. Like Matt Jones, they just talked about like, oh, starting guard, Matt Jones. Yeah. Just bang. They did. And they also talked about starting center Luke Whipler. Yep. Luke, Kevin Wilson called both mm-hmm. of those guys that. So, okay, so. So if we just we just don't know about Harry Miller, but let's take him out of the starting lineup projection for the moment. As a fifth year guy, Kevin Wilson acted like Matt Jones as a starter at guard. He acted like Luke Whipple as a starter at center. And then Steven, now you can go. And it certainly feels like the other starting guard is going to be a guy that Kevin Wilson was raving about on Tuesday. He seems like one of those young, talented people that once you get him on the field, he's not coming off. And he's going to have a runway with that right guard spot. Well, right guard, left guard, however they figure that out, fine. But some of the stuff that Kevin Wilson was talking about today and basically talking about him as if like he's doing stuff out there that's not just, you know, impressive for an offensive lineman. It's impressive for an athlete, period. Like it, it, it's the polar opposite of how they just how they just how he discussed Paris Johnson, where with Paris, it was like, hold your horses. We're going to not say anything nice. He didn't hold back anything with the way he was talking about Donovan Jackson. And as he works through this spring, I mean, they, they, the way they they use him as an extra offensive lineman at times on purpose because they felt like they had to get him on the field. And he said, had he they had to play him last year as a starting guard, he wouldn't have blinked. He wouldn't have blinked twice at it. So it, that's where we're at with Donovan Jackson now. I'm, I think I think the starting five offensive line might be set. He said basically he is as talented as anybody on the field for Ohio State right now. And Kevin Wilson said the most talented offensive lineman he's ever been around is Trent Williams at Oklahoma. Trent Williams, who I believe is a nine-time, nine-time pro bowler in the NFL Arguably the best left tackle in the NFL was a unanimous All-American at Oklahoma, two, two-time All-Big 12. And Kevin Wilson was like, well, Donovan Jackson isn't quite that, but he's in the next group. So that is like tre- tremendous praise. And again, 
on a field full of five stars saying he's as talented as anybody out here. And then Landis said, hey, like, did you almost think about playing him last year? Because, listen, Kevin Wilson is a tight end coach. Kevin Wilson has a lot to say about the offensive line. He has a lot of offensive line experience. I also, I think people came around on this. Kevin Wilson is the offensive coordinator. He has a huge part of the run game. He has a huge part of the offensive line. He's coached quarterbacks before. When we get Kevin Wilson for 40 minutes, don't ask him 40 minutes of tight end questions just because he has tight ends coach as his thing. And, like, I thought we did a good job. Sometimes we do a terrible job from that. And it's like, yes, I one. I can't. We asked one tight end question the entire I time. I can't learn anything more about the tight ends. I don't, there's nothing more to learn. We did a good job today. We asked about everything on the offense because Kevin Wilson, who still talks like a head coach because he still wants to be a head coach, is happy to talk about any position because he knows about any position. I almost thought, Nathan, Landis said, did you almost think about playing him last year? And he said, well, you know, Greg Stadrawa, stud, he was kind of more comfortable with some of the veteran guys. And I joked, said like he was saying, I would have played him, but Stud was afraid to. I'm probably 10% too far reading it that way, Nathan. But the way Kevin Wilson talked about Donovan Jackson, he's he's in love. Yeah, I mean, I guess in retrospect, like, are you you're taking Paris Johnson off the field more? You're taking Thayer Munford off the field more? No, I, I don't know. There's stuff I, you can do. You can play Matt Jones at center and put Donovan Jackson in there. Some, I mean, they played Luke Whippler and Matt Jones, significant snaps. Not, neither of those guys like are like, oh, well, we can't we can't play no, but a five-star I, recruit ahead of them. I wonder if he would have showed up in the spring had he would he have been what Matt Jones was last year. Maybe that's the other thing to remember, too. Yeah, he was yeah. right. If he had, had if he, been here yes. in the spring, that does change the the math, as you've said before. Because, I mean, Sure. It's different when a guy isn't here in in the spring. You don't get that same lead in. I, I no. mean, as a true freshman boy, I don't know. That was a pretty talented offensive line still. But most of the year, the offensive line was never talked about as a problem on this team, at least as far as like actual execution. Yeah, I think if he just showed up in this, because that was like the whole point he was trying to make here is that Matt Jones had been here a little bit longer and had more experience. I think if Donovan would have showed up in January instead of June, I wouldn't have been shocked if when they started doing that whole rotating thing, it was Donovan Jackson in there instead of Matthew Jones. So if that's what it is, Paris Johnson Jr. and Dewan Jones at tackle, Donovan Jackson and Matt Jones at guard, Luke Whippler at center. Nathan, how good is that offensive line? Seems pretty good. I mean, there is some adjustment to be there. Donovan Jackson, as talented as he is, will still just be a second-year player at that point. And a guy that didn't play, as we said, a whole lot as a freshman, true freshman. You'll have, you know, Paris Johnson, um, adjusting back to the outside, but it is his natural position. I mean, I, I, that should be a, an offensive line that that is at roughly at that same level. I think they've sustained a pretty strong level of offensive line play here for a handful of years, and I wouldn't expect that to drop off. I would be intrigued to go Evan Neal, who might be the first pick in the draft, depending on what the Jaguars want to do. Um, his first year starting, he was interior and he was the number one tackle in his recruiting class. And that, and they put him in the guard. Alabama started him at guard before they moved him out to tackle. I think he was a right tackle. Then he was a left tackle. Uh, I think a good gauge with Paris might just go be, let's go look at Evan Neal's film from when he was a guard and then go look at his hmm. film as a, this first year as a tackle and see, especially early in the season and see if there was any rust he needed to knock off in those first couple of games before he really got into a groove. You know, an enterprising reporter at the Combine might have asked Evan Neal about what it was like transitioning from guard to tackle and becoming an All-American tackle. Uh, sorry. 
I was there. That's I didn't cool. do it. That's I cool, should man. Thought of, should have thought of that. Nathan wasn't Nothing. there for offensive line day, so that's on me. I I wasn't there, but I if I had thought of that, I could have reminded you. I'll take one percent of the blame. You can have the other ninety nine. I'm, I'm going to give seventy of it to Stephen because Stephen oh. had a great idea. He just didn't tell us. <laughs> Stephen was like, "Man, fair. if I was at the combine, I'd be all over Evan Neal." And I'm walking around going, "Oh, I wish I had somebody to talk to over here." So anyway, that's a good idea. All right, I have not taken a break yet. We have not taken a break. It's yeah, my but- third third podcast in three hours. I've lost track of where I am. We'll be back on Buckeye Talk to talk running backs, receivers, quarterback, and more after this. Doug, Nathan, Steven, running back. Listen, a little bit of a discussion of like, hey, the run game could have been a little better last year. I think there's a, a little bit of a vibe of Kevin Wilson was telling stories about get a nickel instead of a dollar. I think there's a little bit of a vibe that as a true freshman last year, maybe Travion Henderson throughout the entire season didn't always get the extra yard or two he could have gotten because maybe he was trying to hit a home run every now and then. He's a true freshman. It's, it's okay. I, it's not criticism. But, Nathan, like, do you think that's a, you know, just like, hey, there's more out there for Travion, that he is an incredibly skilled guy, but he's going to get more physical. He's going to get more consistent. He's going to do a better job of turning three into five and five into seven and not just hitting the home runs because we know he can hit a home run. We saw him hit home runs. Although – Kevin Wilson went into a home whole home run versus single analogy, acting like singles are better. And I wanted to interrupt him. He's like, because sometimes if you swing for home runs, just strike out. And I wanted to be like, you realize, Kevin, all baseball is now is home runs and strikeouts because home runs are so valuable. Nobody cares if you strike out. So he was trying to use a make a baseball point about trying to get three yards at a time. But actually, home runs are kind of nice, Nathan. Well, I, not to get into too much of a baseball thing but i feel like the i think it is a comparable analogy because if you're going up and selling out just to hit the home run and you don't you don't make contact i was always taught and i didn't do it well let me let me make sure that i'd say that up front back with <laughs> the not bean, do it well back when i was eight with the beanfield bombers and my coach was telling me shorten up your stroke baird my 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 uh, high school baseball field literally our outfield fence was just like a a temporary snow fence uh, strung up in front of corn stalks. Did I ghosts? Did ghosts ever come out of the corn? No, because they playing? couldn't. Be. Yeah, they, that's why we had the. That's why we had the fence up. They couldn't get through the corn. When you built it, did they keep come the when you built it? What? What's that fence no. for? Oh, keep out the ghosts. Keep out the ghosts. <laughs> um, but if you, it, as a as a as a matter of practice, if you're trying to hit the ball back up the middle, then even when you're a little bit ahead or a little bit behind, you can still get you'll still keep it in play. That's maybe a little bit more of the analogy he should have been going for there. That if you're if you're getting that that repetitive, like you get yourself into that groove of you're always just trying to hit it back up the middle, then even when you're whatever, I'm probably straying from the point. But I I think it is still an apt analogy. But I I want to make sure that we remember with Trevor Henderson. Obviously, the guy had a really jumbled up way of getting here. You know, a lot of true freshmen come in on a very, on a certain trajectory and they have all the promise in the world and they can show up and take off. And he did not have that trajectory as did nobody else in that freshman class. Most, a lot of players not in that freshman class because of what happened in the world in 2020. And so he shows up in 2021 in a very different circumstance, even though he did get to show up in the spring um, as we were talking about before. So I, I don't, I, I always kind of wonder if that is a little bit 
has to be ba- is, is a little bit baked into the performance that we saw from him last year. And now that he really just has his football foundations reset again, that he can really build off of that as a sophomore. I just think this is a guy who's used to going running for a first down every time he touches the ball. And the first time that didn't happen, he got a little frustrated and started, started being impatient. And that's what happened. That Penn State game, that's what happened. That's I don't think he's ever worked that hard before to get 152 yards. That's never probably never happened to him. And it that plus like the Michigan game and those first three, you know, the first three plays of the second half, it's like you got to be patient sometimes. And it's almost the same lesson that J.K. Dobbins had to learn in 2018 when he came back in 2019. Now it's a little bit different because JK then never came off the field and they were giving him the ball 30 times a game. They're probably not going to do that with him this year, at least not by the way that they were practicing where him and mine were taking all their snaps with CJ Stroud. But the idea of this isn't high school anymore. You got to learn to have some patience to pick your spots. It's something that uh, any young player who's been this dominant his entire life is going to have to learn. So it is one of those, it's like, hey, Trevion, that 1,248-yard season when you ranked 25th in the nation in rushing yards per game and in the top 13 among Power 5 teams, that eh, could be better. So, yes. I mean, I, but I think, like, that's a compliment because I, I, nobody's criticizing him there. But they were giving an impression of we want the run game to be more consistent and we want to make sure that we aren't only hitting home runs. But they're going to lean on Trevion Henderson, but a guy who we have talked about, who we have been very intrigued by, did get mentioned. And again, both in a positive and like in a, hey, let's go kind of way. And that was Evan Pryor, because Mayan Williams, who changed his number, is Mayan Williams. And they basically even kind of said that. But I thought, Nathan, and again, I can't remember whether it was Wilson or Day, I thought somebody threw out something about competition in regards to Evan Pryor. And it's like, well, we know no one's taken Trebion's job, but we've talked about how important being the number two running back here is and I thought someone threw the line in the water to try to get a bite from Evan Pryor and say, hey, 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 let's go. Like, there's a chance for you here this spring and, and this season. Yeah, it was me. I was the one who asked the question of Kevin Wilson about. You threw the line in the water for Evan Pryor? I, I did. I Ooh, said, you know, bait on what, that hook? You know, wait, you know, because Ryan Day had mentioned him as one of the more improved guys that they'd seen in the winter got, got one of the you know best off season awards, but what does he need to show to close the gap to, to compete for a bigger role? I, I said something along those lines and his answer basically was do what he's doing, but do it more consistently. In fact, I think he said about, was it him and Jaden Ballard that he was both talking about as having had these great off seasons and that they don't, well, the way he said it with prior was, he doesn't need to get better at all. He just needs to repeat the good yeah. things he's doing um, with more frequency. So I thought that was kind of an eye opener to me was that, that uh, you know, he is just a richer freshman now, um, but that he, from a skill standpoint, from a physical standpoint, it's not like they're feeling like he's still lagging behind. Now it's just a matter of maybe it goes back to the kind of that mental toughness I was talking about before, whatever, like you've got to be able to just, just that, um, that consistency of play, that reliability from down to down from snap to snap, which I think is probably a, a lot of young players have to make that adaptation. It, it where you, it's where you make that transition from like that flash to where you're just, now you're the guy. Let me ask this question. If you were baiting a hook, would you touch a worm? Nathan, would you touch a worm? Of course. I've baited a hook before. Steven, would you touch a worm? Can I first know what the term baiting a hook is? Like when you're Jesus. fishing. 
like if I've you're fishing and fishing, so I've never really been fishing that I've like kind of been, but I don't want to touch a worm. You no, don't want to touch a worm, fishing. right? Steven, no. you wouldn't touch a worm, would you? Mm, Nathan, no. you just grab a worm and you just jab that hook right through the worm's body and let it wriggle there. Sure. Like you get, well, no, you kind of, you, there's a way to do it because you're trying to make it so that when the fish bites it, it's, it has to bite it in such a way that it has to get all the hook in its mouth. So when you jerk the hook, then now you're, you're grabbing yeah. the fish, but like, you know how I go fishing. I go to Carfanya's. I grab a number. And then when they call my number, I just point out the fish. I want, I don't need a hook or anything. I just give them my money. And then they gave me the fish that's, and I go home. Good. You do understand though, that someone along the line did have to bait a hook and reel that guy in. I will. Yeah, I appreciate that person because they, but they didn't get my money. Carfanya's Carf- got my money. Do you, you think, think they're doing it by hook or by net? Are they hooking the fish there or net? Depends. Depends on the fish, I think. How about a fish? Would you touch a fish, Nathan, with your hand? Of course. Like you would touch, like a fish comes out of the water, like a scaly I've fish. I've been fishing. With its I flapping like, oh. oh, no. I was going to say, I would touch a fish that's been cooked, and I would put it in some bread so that way I could have a fish. But would you touch, Stephen, would you touch a living fish? No. No, no, no. no. I don't want to touch a fish. I don't think I've ever touched a fish. I don't want to touch. But isn't a fish horrible to touch? And it's wriggling and it's trying to breathe, but it can't breathe in the air. And you're trying to grab the hook that's stuck. And sometimes it's stuck in its lip. You just grab that fish. Aren't doesn't it make you nervous? Nervous about what? About touching a fish about ooh fish. One time. No, one time we went deep sea fishing when I was a kid Mm -hmm. at the beach. And uh, everybody puked. <laughs> we were out on the boat and everybody was puking. I didn't puke. I didn't catch anything. And then one time we were fishing off a bridge at the beach and we caught a horseshoe crab and the horseshoe crab, like we pulled it up on the bridge and it like vomited everywhere or something. Something came out of it. And I just, I'm with Steven. Let someone else. I think it's a net though. It's a net. There's not some guy like at, at a fish store. When you go to the grocery store, you go to a restaurant. I'm assuming that's a net. There's not a guy or a woman with a fishing pole. Oh no, they've got gloves on, and they just. But I mean, they're not pulling them out of the. They're not pulling them out of the river one by one, are they? If you get a trout, I guess if you. But you get a river fish or a sea, like a sea fish. I don't ask that many questions. I just say, let me get that catfish right there. (laughs) I think you're right. I think commercial fishing. Boy, this this has really gone in a uh, taking a left hand (laughs) turn. This pole podcast. I think you're right. Commercial fishing is large scale like they're probably using net to uh, net to catch all those fish but my favorite when i go to florida my on the when we have gone to florida um my favorite part of the vacation was we would take like a day and go deep sea fishing i love that and then you catch do you ever clean the fish and then eat it and no because part of the part of the experience usually is actually they're usually baiting the hooks for you too because they can just do it so much faster it's so much more efficient you got your your captain that's driving you out there and then he they they when you take all your fish back to the dock and then they clean them, fillet them, and, okay. give you this, and you take so those you keep them. and have them cook them. Cool. I was gonna say actually, let me. I'm just saying like that actually like irks my nerves. People who go fishing where they catch the fish just to throw it back. So basically, you just abuse an animal. That's animal abuse. You put a hole in what? that in that fish's cheek for no reason. But would the fish rather have a hole in its cheek than be dead? Would you rather have a hole in your cheek right now? Then be dead? Yes. If, <laughs> and have that near death. I don't know how we got here. Evan Pryor is, is, he looks like a better running back this year, and he's going to challenge Mayan Williams for running back number two. That's what we didn't say. I agree. That's not an interesting discussion. That's uh, <laughs> it's too obvious. All right, Evan Pryor. 
We're excited about Evan Pryor. Tight end. Uh, Steven, it was sort of like Ryan, when Ryan Day was asked, like, hey, we did a little bit of tight on the defense pod because Kate Stover. It was like, hey, what are you thinking about? And he was like, well, we got to find somebody at tight end. And they're going to miss Jeremy Ruckert. And then I know Kevin Wilson even throw a thing about, I know everybody says you don't throw the ball to the tight ends at Ohio State. It's like, but you don't. Like, what are you? (laughs) I mean, like, don't be offended. Don't be, like, mad at us that you don't do it. (laughs) To be fair, he gets on that soapbox at least once a year. So at least we got it out the way in spring practice one so we don't have to hear it anymore. And it's just a a fact. Steven, do you think they feel okay at tight end or do you feel like they're searching? A little bit, because as we said, it feels like Joe Royer, G. Scott kind of as more like the out wide guys, like as Kevin Wilson said, kind of like half tight end, half receiver. And then Sam Hart, Bennett Christian. I'm going to call him Christian Bennett at some point. Bennett Christian, more the inline tight end, as they kind of said, like half tight end, half fullback. And then, of course, Mitch Raggi, Mitch Rossi, the magical potion that makes the whole offense come together. He's out for the spring. He'll be back. Do you think they feel OK? Do you think they actually are nervous, Stephen? I think they are okay, okay in the sense that they have an idea of who is what. I don't. I think they're nervous about the who is what can actually lead to productive, you know, play on the field. If you want to tell me Joe Royer's ready to be your starting tight end in year three, where he's had a serious physical transformation, because I remember watching him in high school, and from that point to where what I saw in fall camp last year, those are two different human beings. I'll believe that, but that's, I mean, like we just got done talking about, they don't throw to the tight end. So having a receiving tight end who's ready to go doesn't help you at all. I think they need either Bennett Christian to be ready to go right away or Sam Hart needs to take like a jump here. Cause that's, what's more important here is having that blocking inline tight end than having the receiving tight end right now. So you don't feel like you have to play four wide receivers more than you need to, or, you need you don't have the necessary blocking to do some of the stuff you want to do in the run game. Because sometimes you're going to, it is like the tight end you're putting out there. It's like, well, are we taking a receiver off the field to do this. And like, right. I just, it did sound like Nathan, that there was a lot of a decent amount of discussion between Wilson and day of, well, we like to go 12 personnel, but if we can't go 12 personnel, cause we don't have the guys, then we just run three receiver even more. They're going to have one tight end on the field almost all the time. But to Steven's point, Nathan, like, that tight end is more likely to be a guy who can be lined up on the end of the line and, and block a little bit. And it is just a, it's a, they feel a little in between to me that they seem to talk about Joe Royer and G Scott as the first two guys in that room. But yet both of them are a little bit lighter, more of the receiving type. Now, listen, Ruckert became a great blocker. We don't know if Royer and or G Scott are going to become Great blockers. Royer's listed at 245. Kevin Wilson was saying they'd like to get, he's like at two, G Scott's like at 235. They'd like to get him up to the high 230s, maybe to 240. I, I, I don't know, Nathan. I do, I, they're a little, I think they're, they're still working it out right here. I'm not exactly sure where it's going to land. I do think they are a little bit caught in between. I think they have to like the athletic. I mean, clearly the upside, just the general athletic football player upside on G Scott is higher. He was a top 100 prospect. I know he wasn't a tight end at the time, but like it it, clearly it's higher for him or what he could be athletically, but he's light for what Ohio state needs from his tight ends. And then Joe Royer, like you said, 245, he's really right. You know, 6'5", 245 body wise. That's, that's, about what they want. I mean, maybe no, a little bit every, bigger. Every tight end at the combine is 6'5", 250. So you're right. He's not far from right. that. Right. So that, yeah, it is. It's like carbon copy almost. It's crazy there. And so he's close, but 
Joe Royer hardly played last year. And the only guys really in front of him, I mean, G Scott got more real tight end time than Joe Royer did. So that told me, tells me a little bit something. Royer was still the one that I picked to be the starter um, on that depth chart this for this fall, just based on the fact that he does have that size. And if you're only going to put one on the field, maybe you're just going with the, the one that can block the best and has the most tight end body. But you can't get too, you can't platoon this too much because the whole point is that an opposing defense respects what you may do with the personnel you have, they have to respect everything. And if you start having an offense that you can only run when G Scott's out there and an offense, you can only run when Bennett Christian's out there and an offense. You can only run when Joe Royer's out there. You've made yourself uh, accidentally one dimensional. So listen, what they want to do is put their base personnel on the field and then do multiple things out of that. As you're saying, right. Nathan, they don't want to go five receivers. They don't want to go, you know, with a certain look where, you know, well, now they're thrown. They want to go five wide by putting a receiver and a tight end out wide with the receivers. But if you can't find a tight end that you believe in as a blocker and they do not throw to the tight end, they don't. Why not throw a number that starts with an eight on Josh Fryer and play him at tight end when you want somebody who can block? Because you're not going to throw it to him anyway. Now, you take the threat away, so you change how – but you can have him block, and you can still throw with Josh Fryer at tight end on the field. You're just not going to throw to him, which they already don't do because you're trying to find your Luke – two years ago when they had Farrell and Ruckert, right? Well, last year, Stover was kind of like the Farrell, but also the whole point was Ruckert developed into a Farrell, that Ruckert was both. I think Sam Hart becomes incredibly important here. Again, if G. Scott – and Joe Royer are a little more of the pass receiving kind of guy. Sam Hart is first up. Bennett Christian just got here, man. First up among the inline tight ends. I don't know why you want maybe try to get creative here, though. They've done it before. They did it with Reed Fragle. They took him from a tight end and made him a tackle. I don't know how often you take a tackle and make him a tight end. But I don't know, Stephen. Like, I'm just searching here. But they want a guy. They want a sixth guy who can block, mm-hmm. that they can believe in. So they can throw, so they can protect CJ Stroud so he can throw to Jackson Smith and Jigba, or so they can hand it to Trevion Henderson. We got the guys who can put the ball in their hand and do stuff. If you can't find the block and tight end, turn a tackle into a block and tight end. You can't run RPOs without good tight ends. Kevin Wilson even said that. You can't because that's a blocker that that's almost the most important blocker sometimes and decide and for and the QB making the decision, whether he's going to pull it or, or hand it off or not. So that's all the way out the question that CJ is, has been really good in the, in the RPO situations, especially with his decision-making. Um, yeah. Like I said before, Sam Harder, Brennan Kirsten is going to, this is a really important spring and fall for them. They're going to have to figure that one out because what we are figuring out here is, and maybe we already knew it already, but in the Luke Farrell, you know, Jeremy Ruckard discussion of the two types of tight ends we they want. We just found out which which part of that you know scale is more important. It's clearly the Luke Farrell one because if it was polar opposite, and we were talking about a situation where Sam Hart and Bennett Christian were ready to go, while we were still trying to see some development from Joe Royer and G Scott, I don't think we'd be. With nobody would be in panic mode or thinking, oh, they're in trouble at tight end right now. You would just think, oh, okay, well, they're just going to do what they usually do and not throw the tight ends and whatever Joe Roy and G. Scott are ready, they'll be ready. 
Joe Royer, huge hair, huge hair. He cut some of it off too. That's part but of I, it. It's, it's still huge. Yeah. But also Nathan, even Kevin Wilson said that today, Kevin Wilson said like that tight end transition for a guy like G Scott usually takes two years. This is year two. He's not done. So uh, I thought Kevin Wilson, Nathan was just trying to give us a little thing of like, Hey, we think G Scott's got a lot to work with, but we just, we're not going to put too much on his plate. He's got time, but he is learning a new position. He's still gaining weight. I came of that way from that thinking like, I, like, I don't know that G Scott is going to be the answer for them. And then I don't know if Joe Royer, Sam Hart or Bennett Christian is an answer for them. I'm just not sure they have Mitch Rossi might be the closest thing to an answer because they know what he can do. Can and can't do. So, but I also don't know Nathan that you can line Mitch Rossi up at tight end for 500 snaps this year. So again, it remains the most questionable position on the whole team. It's the position that I think they needed transfer help at the most without question and it's the one that maybe proves that the theory that we had that um, they would just kind of be able to put out the bat signal and players from lower like level programs who are really good at that position would just start showing up. That hasn't really happened. And, and I don't know, maybe maybe it will over time. But this seems like one where like if you were a great tight end at that next notch of program down, why wouldn't you come here and play for one year? I know you don't get thrown to a lot, but it seemed like there would still have been an opening for someone. The Luke, a Luke Farrell out there somewhere else who probably isn't getting thrown to a lot anyway could have come here and been a huge piece of this offense. And maybe it's still good. Maybe maybe somebody shakes loose at the end of the spring. But the, the, this is not a program with a lot of scholarship numbers uh, to add guys on right now. But I, I thought that coming away from the conversation on Tuesday, I thought mm, they might still be looking. That let some stuff shake out in spring ball and let's check back in May and see if there's a new tight end on the roster. Just feels a little short. Let's talk about CJ Stroud. Steven, conversation around what this guy's going to be like in year two as a starter. And both Kevin Wilson and Ryan Day seemed excited about the idea of he's going to be able to maybe make some more protection calls at the line, maybe change some more plays at the line. As much as we've talked about CJ Stroud's brain, the way they were talking, it feels like he's only used a portion of it so far. And now when you add his intelligence and his feel for the game to experience, now a whole bunch of more stuff's going to open up. Yeah, it feels like because what his best trade is, he was ready to do it last year, but he's a first year starter. So they weren't ready to let him do it yet. Now they're going to open it up, and I, I can't remember if it was Dale Wilson who said it, but they were, you know, throwing some new stuff, some new types of concepts at him, some new types of formations at him this year because, you know, he is a second-year quarterback, and also the more important thing that this is the major difference between him and Justin is he's getting a second-year starting quarterback with a normal off-season leading up to it. You know, Justin's kind of got interrupted by COVID, and so it was kind of weird, like. CJ's going to get all this spring. He's going to get all summer. He's going to get fall camp, putting all these different stuff in. And then we're going to see it all unlocked against Notre Dame, which is a pretty quality point to start it all against. But I do think it's going to be interesting watching CJ pre-snap next year and see what all he's doing. Let, let a post-snap, yeah, what kind of decision-making do you throw to the open receiver? Is it on time, on target, all that stuff? But 
I want to see what he looks like pre-snap in a world where he doesn't have to look at the sideline every play and say, hey, this is happening. What do you want me to do? I can just figure it out on my own now. And I can say, oh, I see that blitzer. Yada, yada, yada here. Yada, yada, yada there. That's that's. I don't know if Ohio State's had a quarterback like that. This happens a lot. This really happens a lot in the draft process. Everybody wants to know how much freedom did you have at the line? How much were you mm-hmm. able to change plays? How much did they put on your plate? Um, this is really going to help accelerate CJ, who, again, I was on a podcast with Jake Burns uh, from the OBR and a Cleveland Browns podcast this week. Jake's a great film guy, really understands football. Like He, he can't stop talking about CJ, right? We were talking about CJ. But again, to think that it's only like scratching the surface, CJ, in a lot of ways. And you guys all know what it looks like. It's what you're talking about, Stephen. They get to the line. They'll do something. They try to get a read on the defense. Then everybody looks to the sideline and it's like, okay, are we changing the play? Are we changing the protection? Whatever we're doing. The idea, especially with how much I like to go up tempo, that if you, if CJ Stroud gets to the point, Nathan, where he's got it, bing, bang, boom, we know he's capable of that. And we know, and again, Ryan Day was saying this guy, he's driven to be better every single day. I think it's like really intriguing. And again, like, is it exciting? But I think like, it's like inside football intriguing, just like watch the development and talk about it all year. I I came away from this first day, Nathan, understanding like how excited they seem about the idea of year two, CJ Stroud. Well, and again, it's, it's year three, CJ Stroud. I mean, I know he only played last year, but he, I think it's important to remember he got to come in, in the spring of 2020. He got to have that whole, I know it was a messed up off season, but it was still an off season of learning an off season of physical growth, all that stuff. And then he gets a full conventional year to be the starting quarterback, you know, win the job and then be the starting quarterback, go through all the trials and tribulations and the ups and downs and the accolades of that. And then now I think is coming into this season. Very, I would think just more certain than ever of his identity and who he is and what he's capable of and can now just sort of attack every day with a, a greater confidence than um, a, a guy, the guy who came in in, in, the, in the winter of 2020 with maybe sort of low stakes. They're fighting to compete uh, or competing to, to back up Justin Fields, but you didn't have to be the guy and, and the pressure wasn't on you yet. And, and now he's been through the pressure and succeeded mostly. So now uh, – what, what what's left to grow to. And, and as, as they put it, you know, as, as Kevin Wilson put it, that's maybe the thing he's most excited about is just how much room there may still be to grow for him. I thought the way Ryan day talked about Kyle McCord, Steven was pretty good for Kyle McCord. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, I was impressed with how Kyle came in today. I thought he had a good seven on seven. He had a good approach and he kind of picked up from where he left off in bowl practice which is great. And then Devin Brown, the two freshman who's in early Ryan days, basically like, again, he's just trying to find the bathroom, but Kyle McCord's future really, really matters here. And that Ryan day thought he continued something from bowl practice through the off season and brought in like the right approach and energy on day one. Again, some guys you want to talk up, some guys you want to like keep under control. I, I took that as real though. And I thought that was kind of a good sign for Kyle McCord. I take it as, him saying, Hey, Kyle, I see you because he, Kyle could have left or he could have pouted. And like, it's very, at this point, he knows he's not the starting quarterback this year and he's not entering this spring in a type of battle to try to take this job from CJ Stroud. But that doesn't mean you 
start acting like a backup quarterback and you kind of take your 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 foot off the pedal a little bit. No, you keep going because, well, in 12 months, you're going to be in another battle and you'd rather not lose to a guy who hasn't been here as long as you've been here. So I, 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 that's how I took that. It's not necessarily trying to keep his spirit, but like making sure Kyle knows that people are still watching him, even if he's not the focal point right now, because CJ is the starter and he's not. Yeah, I mean, 12 months at, at worst. You never know what's going to happen. Think, things can happen. He had to start a game last year. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he had to get better regardless of the competition. He has to be a championship level quarterback. I think you can, you know, we've seen before where, uh, championship level teams are only as good as their backup quarterback a little bit or third string, especially yeah. I think a team that is led that is going to have to lean on its offense. You know, the, the, the Stetson Bennett example was a team where foundationally that was a defensive team that, that really drove things and the offense could, could build off of that. I think Doug might be, are you, are you dying to jump in with a, have we retired? I don't know if Stetson? I should retire it. We maybe maybe should. Retire. He won a national championship. I think he deserves respect at this point. But but, but now you know that I have like- brought glory to the great state of Georgia, I am happy to serve as inspiration to any Yankee quarterback who would like to follow in my footsteps. Nothing but the best to young Kyle McCord. But if Stetson Leghorn had had to go out and throw for 400 yards a game and, and yeah. lead an offense like that, it might have been a different thing. But dynamic was different. But that's not what Ohio State's going to have. Ohio State, as much as we think the defense, you know, there's there's reason for optimism that things could go in and they'll bring it around. It's still going to be very much be led by the offense, and they need to have two quarterbacks at least who can do that. No, that's real. That's real. I mean, like, let's get to the point. Let's go back to Justin Fields in 2019, where it's like they have one quarterback and ask, mm-hmm. like, how important is it to have a second and third quarterback? All right. When was the last time they, they haven't had an experienced scholarship backup quarterback since Joe Burrow no, left? <laughs> like, no, or it, Tate Martell oh, was still here, I guess. Maybe even I'd say 20s, ooh, maybe 2017 with Dwayne Haskins behind JT Barrett. Yeah, well, but like Dwayne hadn't really played. Like when they had yeah. to put Dwayne in against Michigan, I think they felt okay about it. Yeah, um, but even to, it's not even. But this is even the more extreme because you got two guys who have started a football game for yeah. you. I mean, for like really played, maybe not back to Kenny Gate dreams of Kenny yeah. Gate because he had to play because Braxton had a couple games where he was hurt. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it's like a guy who's been around at least. So the, like Kyle McCord, if we ever decided to do, let's do the backup best backup quarterbacks in college football. Like Kyle McCord is like a good backup quarterback. He's a second-year five-star guy who started a game. Like, that's who's got uh, better than that, right? Because even if there's other five-star guys who are backups, they might be true freshmen, right? I mean, this is <laughs> this is pretty good. So it's good for Ohio State that he's back, and it's good for Kyle McCord that, as you said, Stephen, I think that's right. Ryan Day is like, I see you. Thanks for being here. You're important to us. Good job this offseason. That's not nothing. Receivers are left. We'll do it next on Buckeye Talk. Doug Reese, Nathan Baird, Stephen Mean, 614-350-3315 is how you get the text. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Drop a review if you'd like. We certainly would take those at Apple Podcasts. Nathan, there have been times. I think, I think me freaking out was the first day of spring practice two years ago, right? When Garrett moved to the slot, like that was the first day of spring practice. We figured that out. And then Garrett moved back outside in year three. Jackson Smith and Jigba played in the slot last year. This would have been the day to say, hey, Jackson Smith and Jigba is moving outside. That's not what the answer was. The answer was he's going to play everywhere. But I really took it, Nathan, as 
he's going to be the slot receiver. Of course he goes outside. They said, well, we go to 12 personnel, he goes outside. Well, yeah, when they went to 12 personnel, they played Olave and Wilson two years ago. They took Jamison Williams off the field, and those were the two guys. We get it, and then you have to be outside because there is no slot. Like, we get that. But we're talking about the rest of the time when you're playing three receivers. And, yes, they do move guys around a little bit. But I think I'm coming away from this. Yes, Jackson's going to be multiple. Yes, he knows how to play every position, but I think he's the slot receiver. And then they're going to put the other two guys outside, whether it's Marvin Harrison Jr. or Julian Fleming, or whether how Emeka Buka now works in more outside as we saw him play outside in the Rose Bowl. Does that sound right to you, Nathan? There's some things that I just have started to kind of filter out. I think as you have, you've been doing this, you know, uh, at these Ohio state press conferences longer than I have, like, you know, everybody's all those guys are going to play. Well, that's kind of a thing that I just, that doesn't mean anything to me. It was one of those sayings. And I think that like, he's going to play inside and out is kind of becoming one of those things. It's you know, I, Ryan day did say that he didn't think there was anybody on the offense. That's only practicing at one spot or anybody, any of the receivers that are only learning one receiver spot. That's fine. But in general, these guys do tend to line up in a fairly static way. And, and the the they aren't talking about this the way you're right they aren't talking about this the way they talked about Garrett Wilson where it was like we're taking this guy from a guy who plays sometimes to and we're making him this weapon in this spot because it will emphasize it will be able to do this with him within the offense that's not how they talk about Jackson Smith and Jigba Jackson Smith and Jigba is, now there's a different dynamic here relative to the talent and the experience in that room so that's an important thing to keep in mind I don't think that changes the the fact, though, that it's really more about I think Jackson Smith the Jigba is going to be mostly what Jackson Smith the Jigba was last year. It'll be I mean, he did this in the Rose Bowl. It'll be what the Rose Bowl was. He became the number one guy, and that meant that he still was a slot receiver to start that game. But when they went to two tight ends, he moves outside. I think that's so, going to largely be what we see. And Steven, they are, he's going to get double. Teams are going to sell out mm-hmm. to stop him. So they, I think there is, and I asked Ryan Day, well, will he move? If you say he's going to move around, is that because you want to work in other guys because you want to move him around the field so defenses can't just key on him? And he said both. I do get that part of it, Steven, that you've got to get creative. He's the most dangerous receiver in college football. Who's going to play with one of the best quarterbacks in college football. They, they have a chance to be the best quarterback receiver combo in the game. And everybody knows it. Marcus Freeman knows that since uh, uh, Notre Dame's going to have a plan for this. So to just say, well, line up in the slot. I get that. So I do think, I mean, there'll be some creativity, but I don't think it's going to be like 50% outside 50% in the slot. No um, one. I don't know how much of Garrett going into the slot. His sophomore year was a plan versus who else were they going to put in the slot? Cause think it wasn't like somebody was rotating in there the year before, like Jalen Gill didn't develop into what the, top 100 recruit that he was and so they had to move somebody there and Garrett just was the most likely option especially since you had at least at that time before COVID kicked in you had Jamison Williams and Chris Olave outside you do kind of have options here where it's not they're not necessarily in a situation where if if we don't move Jackson outside we don't know what we have there I think when he says we're going to move him around Nathan's right it's going to be like the Rose Bowl there are going to be some times where he lines up in the backfield and he runs a route that brings him back back to the middle of the field and he's going to take it for a touchdown there are going to be some times where they bring him in motion they jet sweep it to him they I think as creative as we saw Alabama get with Devontae Smith when Jalen Waddle went down 
I think that's how creative Ryan Day and Kevin Wilson are going to get when it comes to Jackson Smith and Jigman getting him his 10 cut touches a game. Now, one thing I think is worth discussing is will there also be times, though, that they would like to have JSN and Emeka Ibuka in the game at the same time? Yes, but I think, but then I, th- I think Egbuka is now the guy who becomes an outside receiver, right? Didn't we see that a little bit in the Rose yes. Bowl too? Yeah, that could happen too. I'm, I'm just saying, I, I, would it even happen for like one series a game that they would have them both on the field and, and put Egbuka in the slot? I don't know. They, they've got the options, but I, I just, I, I don't, I don't, I don't. Yeah, there's definitely not going to be some switch where uh, JSN eventually becomes a full time outside receiver. Nothing is off the table with where they line him up. I just think it's a three-man rotation. On a normal basis, it's just a three-man rotation on the outside. And maybe maybe that's where the whole everybody's learning every position because maybe Emeka Ibuka is talented enough to be an X or a Z. So he's just rotating with with Marvin Harrison Jr. and, and uh, Julian Fleming on the outside. And depending on whichever one is on the field, he's either an X or a Z. So let me uh, let me drop this on you just as a comparison. So in 2020, according to PFF, Garrett Wilson played 316 snaps in the slot and 156 snaps out wide, right? So double in the slot. Doesn't mean he's never out wide, but that's where they go 12 personnel, which they did a lot in 2020. Then he's out wide. Mm-hmm. 2020, 2021, Garrett Wilson is 488 snaps out wide, 107 in the slot. So that's an outside receiver who, again, sometimes you line up guys and, oh, Jackson wound up outside in this formation and Garrett's inside. But that's like a significant change. Garrett Wilson's role significantly changed. He went from doing twice as much in the slot to three times as much out wide. It was a different role for him. Jackson Smith and Jigba last year, 562 snaps in the slot, 60 out wide. He's a slot receiver. Now, mm-hmm. 17 of those 60 snaps out wide were in the Rose Bowl. Okay, we get it. So maybe it's not 562 to 60, but he's still going to have more snaps in the slot than he is out wide. And that's different than Garrett's progression, Stephen. That's all. We thought mm-hmm. maybe. I, I'm not surprised by this, but if they would have said, yep, Jackson's out wide. Emeka's the new slot. And this is how we're doing it. You're one as a starter. You're the slot. Then we move you out wide. It's versatile for you. It's good for us. I would not have been shocked by that either. Now, Jackson is so explosive in the slot. Like, why would you mess with that? I get it. But, Stephen, I thought the door was open. And, and he's just – he's not on the Garrett path. Yeah, Um I'm with you. I wouldn't have been shocked if they did that either. But I do think it just at this point probably just comes down to what's your actual best spot within this offense. And as explosive as Garrett was in the slot, his best spot was always at X receiver where it's just him and a cornerback on the opposite side of the formation. Because, I mean, he excelled at X this freshman year. They just needed to put somebody in the slot. Jackson is always going to be in the slot. That's always going to be where he's best use we'll see with the mecca when he gets his opportunity next his extended opportunity next year but for right now I, I do think i won't be shocked if they use the garrett wilson plan on somebody else down the road if they feel like they need to do it but I, what's more important is make sure you, making sure you maximize whenever whatever a player's skill set is when, when you've got this many talented wide receivers and the other factor too is which of these other receivers sort of just demands to be on the field in a way that the other guys are competing with don't that that could also happen 
Like Marvis Harrison Jr. having games like he did in the Rose Bowl tells me that guy's got to be on the field at all times. Yeah, but even with that one, it's like that's clearly a dude who needs to be an X receiver on that island because yeah. look what he did. That's my point. Well, yeah. yeah, so that, to that, it is. It's it, it applies to everybody. It's just more interesting with Jackson and Garrett because it probably doesn't matter where you put them. They're going to dominate no matter what. And listen, there is a reason we were thinking this way before the Rose Bowl last year. Again, all these stats are by PFF. Snaps in the slot for Emeka Egbuka going into the Rose Bowl, 66 in the slot, 38 out wide. Mm. In the Rose Bowl, 16 out wide, two in the slot. So, okay, here we go. Jackson Smith and Jigba is going to be in the slot, and they're going to probably have Julian Fleming, Marvin Harrison Jr., and Emeka Buka as their three outside guys rotating. And, of course, when they go 12 personnel, that'll actually be a very big deal. More often than not, when they go 12, and maybe they won't go 12 that much, but when they do, who's the second receiver on the field with Jackson Smith and Jigba? Because that was one of the things that sort of took as much as Jamison Williams was like an unproductive starting receiver in 2020. They went to 12 personnel enough and he was never the guy who stayed on the field that he was really like 40 percent of a starter because they liked Ruckert, Farrell, Wilson and Olave on the field together. And Jamison Williams got aced out. They probably won't like 12 as much this year as we just covered. But I'll be curious to see it's going to be Jackson and who and maybe that'll rotate, too but maybe there'll be a guy who really establishes himself as the second best option. I depend on where they're thinking. at on the field. Honestly. Could, yeah. Because, because unlike, I mean, those three candidates are pretty different. Yeah. Like Marvin Harrison to Julian Fleming to Emeka Buka. That's not really like continuity there. It's, it's getting three different looks, which is interesting as a receiver group as a whole, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that too. I think if it's in the red zone, it's going to be Marvin because He's the only receiver like that in the room where, I mean, I mean, we all saw that picture probably they put out of him jumping and he's basically not the one where he's mossing the GA, the other one from when they were doing mat drills. Um, That's more impressive to me than you mossing the GA. Uh, I think if they're in a situation where it's a play action deep pass, it might be Julian. And I think if they're just going 12 personnel trying to run stuff, it might be a Mecca. So it just might be situational with that other guy. Or it might just be the same person every single time if Marvin Harrison clearly shows he's better than the other two. That's one of those things. When they get in 12, that's like you said, they like to run play action and go deep. That's the Chris Olave specialty is a mm-hmm. deep shot out of 12. Who's your best deep threat this year? Like I, maybe Julian Fleming, right? I don't like his, mm-hmm. I, I, but, but maybe might, not. Might maybe it's the Jigba. <laughs> so. <laughs> Your All best right. deep threat is a two-yard pass. <laughs> Your best deep threat is a two-yard pass, and he breaks off two defenders, and now he's gone 70 yards. So listen, if Ohio State plays 15 games, we'll do this next week because uh, this is your Wednesday podcast. The Thursday podcast will, again, bring it to you late on Thursday because we'll do it off of the interviews with receivers and running backs, by the way, which will be a nice little thing. We'll talk to these guys about this stuff. That'll be the Thursday pod. I'm thinking Friday – Nathan and I might do a Friday madness pod and then that will set up Steven, you and I to do a Monday pod to preview Ohio state in the NCAA tournament off the selection show off Sunday night. But then that leaves an opening next week, no spring practice there on spring break. So we could do a podcast. Will uh, will Jackson Smith and Jigba have 200 receptions this season. I mean, that's like, no, they play 15 games and he averages like 14 a game. That'd be, 
like you're getting close, 15 a game. Can he average 15 receptions a game? We'll talk about that next week, Stevens. I'm not serious. It's like 140 is the over-under, not 200. What am I, nuts? 140, though, is on the table. If Jackson Smith Smith and Jigba has 200 catches next year, whoever has the number one pick in the draft better pick him. I don't care what needs you have. You draft, draft that guy. There were guys, the guy, a guy from Western Kentucky, Bailey Zappi was thrown like 70 times a game. A guy from Western Kentucky led the nation in receptions this year with 150. The second place guy was 105. So Jackson Smith and Jigba over under 140. That's 14 <laughs> games, 10 a game. Like he's not going to have 10 receptions a game. Anyway, we'll do that next week. For now, that's our offensive wrap up. Go back and listen to the defense from the Tuesday afternoon pod if you missed it. Lots of stuff happening. We're bringing it to you here. We're bringing it to you on the texts. And, of course, we're bringing it to you at cleveland.com slash OSU. Go there and read the stories. Thanks, as always, for making Buckeye Talk part of your week four. Nathan Baird and Stephen Means. I'm Doug Maurice. And that was Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk.